Good morning. Welcome, everybody. My name is Tim Harris. I am still the luckiest man alive, blessed to be the pastor of Woodburn Baptist Church. Church family, I love you so much. I can't wait to see you soon. But by now, you've probably seen my message or received a letter from the deacons that, uh, that lets you know that we have decided to wait until the community comes into a later phase of recovery before we resume in-person worship. That is hard for me to say and hard for me to think about. And I know some of you may even question or disagree with that decision, but will you just pray? Can we all just pray that the Lord will give us wisdom, that the Lord will show us his timing and his perfect way to reopen this great church and resume gathering together as the body of Christ? In the meantime, we will continue to gather online like we are here. And I'm so glad that you're there. Thank you for being faithful, faithful to worship, faithful to give, and faithful to be the body of Christ. I love you all so much, and I will. We'll see you soon. But for now, do I even need to tell you, we are in the middle of a global pandemic. The COVID-19 virus has shut down the whole world. I tell you, it's difficult. Those of us who are alive during these days have never seen anything like this. And if the virus itself isn't bad enough, now in the news we're hearing about this. This is called a murder hornet. I mean, what? I mean, the murder, it's, it's the Asian giant hornet, and they're now telling us that these are in the United States. Like they're in the, uh, you know, West Coast United States, but probably headed to Woodburn. I mean, you know, as if the virus wasn't enough, now we got murder hornets. So, you know, y- y'all may be let out of this lockdown pretty soon, but if I find out that one, I mean, this is actual size. This looks like something out of a monster cartoon. And if they tell me that these are in Woodburn, I ain't coming out. I ain't coming out till Jesus comes. And the way it's starting to look, he could be coming soon. I feel like I'm living through the book of Revelation. I mean, don't you? Or the book of Exodus. It feels like the book of Exodus. We're going to be talking about the plagues today. And don't you just feel like we're living through something like that? It feels like a plague, and then it feels like one plague after another. When I first realized I would be preaching Exodus in the middle of this, I realized how appropriate this could actually be. We need to talk about this. We need to talk about the plagues, not just our plagues, but Pharaoh's plagues and what it means that we have to experience times like these. And before we jump in, I want us to talk about plagues. I want us to talk about trouble. And I just want to prepare you for the message today by just sort of laying out a few theological foundations. These are just sort of things that we need to sort of have in agreement before we proceed with the, with the scripture today. First off, just a theological principle, trouble often comes in waves. Trouble often comes in waves. Waves. This is just a fact of life. You can agree or disagree, but I think you'd all agree. Trouble often comes in waves. Like in Exodus, it's, it's not just one plague. It's one plague after another plague after another plague. And that's just how life is. Trouble comes in waves. You know how this works. You're in the middle of a global pandemic. There is a lockdown. And then you run out of toilet paper. And then your refrigerator breaks down. Then your car breaks down. Then your lawnmower breaks down. Then your dog has puppies on the couch, then your dog brings a snake into the house, and somebody burns down your she shed, and then they tell you there are murder hornets. You see, that's how it works. Trouble often comes in waves, one wave after another. But why? 
Where does trouble come from? And that becomes everybody's million dollar question, why? Why does trouble come? Well, three things, let's just again, let's just sort of lay these down as, as foundation. First off, trouble can come on its own. It is a giant universe, a fallen universe, and we are small people and fallen people. We're very, very vulnerable in a universe that is not exactly always turned friendly toward us. And let's just be honest, viruses, murder hornets, uh, everything else that I could possibly name, th these are natural things, and, and they happen, that they can just happen. Jesus said, in this world, you're going to have trouble. I mean, this is part of life. The universe permits trouble after trouble after trouble, and there's not necessarily any explanation for that necessary or forthcoming. This is just life in the world, and trouble often comes on its own, and you don't always need an explanation for the virus. It's a virus, and the world has viruses, and you don't need an explanation for giant Asian hornets. They've been here a long, long time. They just now found out where we live. You understand? Trouble can come on its own. This is the world. Don't be surprised by it. However, you and I as believers, we know that there is also an unseen world, an unseen spiritual universe, and we understand that there's a whole lot more going on than just what I see. And that's why I would say, second big point, trouble can come from the evil one. Now, mark this down, because I'm afraid a lot of people forget this. They forget that when trouble comes, you should always suspect the evil one. It's usually got his fingerprints on it. Jesus himself says that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And that, that's the mission of the devil, and you have an enemy. Please, don't be deceived. You have an enemy. He has a target on your back. He will steal and destroy everything he can possibly get his hands on in your life. This is what he does. He's evil. My problem is that when trouble comes, people rarely get mad at the devil. They rarely even think to blame the devil. They'll blame the Lord. They'll blame people. But they rarely blame the thief who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Understand, trouble can come from the evil one. It often does. Learn to remember that. But, but lastly, and this is important, especially because of the scripture we're reading today, trouble can come from God. I know, we don't always talk about that. The God of love, the God who only wants to bless our lives, absolutely. But sometimes in the process of blessing us and saving us, sometimes in the process of God's trying to conquer evil and, and, and make right what's wrong in the world, understand God has to go to drastic measures. God has to go to drastic measures to save you, to save me. It's drastic measures required to separate you from the sin that would destroy you. Drastic measures are required in order to separate you from the powers that enslave you. I mean, that's what brings us to Exodus. In this great battle between God and the evil and recognize you and I are caught in the middle and we're caught in the crossfire. The book of Exodus has a series of plagues, 10, to be honest, one after another, count them 10. These plagues have a purpose. They really are sent by God. They're drastic measures required for God to deliver his people, to set them free, to lead them into the promised land. In the meantime, it requires a time of shaking, a time of trouble, a, a time of testing, a time of plague.
Now, these plagues are primarily aimed toward Pharaoh, the, the, the power that holds them in slavery. And, and Pharaoh, it turns out, is a very, very slow learner. I want us to look at the plagues this morning. Honestly, it takes about four chapters of the book of Exodus to get all of the plagues. And I'm not going to read four chapters at all. I'm just going to sort of focus on one section because there's a little bit of repetition here. And it's fascinating Bible reading. I, I encourage you to dig in and read from about chapter 7 to, into chapter 10. But, but these plagues are, are just absolutely ma magnificent and, and terrifying. And, and, and it's really, really interesting the way God creates them, the way Moses and Aaron bring them into, uh, in, in, into existence in the nation of Egypt. It's, it's fascinating the, the, the way the people respond. It's, it's awful to see the suffering and misery that, that seems to compound. And honestly, you have to watch the way Pharaoh res responds. Pay attention to how Pharaoh responds. I, I'm going to start in chapter 8, verse 1. Chapter 8, verse 1, we're going to drop into plague number 2, pick up plague number 3. I think you'll get the idea. This is how it goes. Exodus chapter 8, begin with verse 1, the plague of frogs, the second plague. You ready? Then the Lord said to Moses, go back to Pharaoh and announce to him, this is what the Lord says, let my people go so they can worship me. If you refuse to let them go, I will send a plague of frogs against your entire land. The Nile River will swarm with frogs. They will come up out of the river and into your palace, even up into your bedroom and onto your bed. They will enter the houses of your officials and your people. They will even jump into your ovens and your kneading bowls. Frogs will jump on you, your people, and all your officials. And the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, raise the staff in your hand over all the rivers, canals, and ponds of Egypt, and bring up frogs over all the land. So Aaron raised his hand over the waters of Egypt, and frogs came up and covered the whole land. But the magicians were able to do the same thing with their magic. They too caused frogs to come up on the land of Egypt like we needed more frogs. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and begged, plead with the Lord to take the frogs away from me and my people. I will let your people go so they can offer sacrifices to the Lord. You set the time, Moses replied. Tell me when you want me to pray for you, your officials and your people, then you and your houses will be rid of the frogs. They will remain only in the Nile River. Do it tomorrow, Pharaoh said. I'd be thinking today personally, but Pharaoh says tomorrow. All right, Moses replied. It will be as you have said. Then you will know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs will leave you and your houses, your officials, and your people. They will remain only in the Nile River. So Moses and Aaron left Pharaoh's palace, and Moses cried out to the Lord about the frogs he had inflicted on Pharaoh. And the Lord did just what Moses had predicted. The frogs in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields all died. The Egyptians piled them into great heaps, and a terrible stench filled the land. Frog stink. But when Pharaoh saw that relief had come, he became stubborn. He hardened his heart. He refused to listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had predicted. 
So the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, raise your staff and strike the ground. The dust will turn into swarms of gnats throughout the land of Egypt. So Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded them. When Aaron raised his hand and struck the ground with his staff, gnats infested the entire land, covering the Egyptians and their animals. All the dust in the land of Egypt turned into gnats, maybe mosquitoes. It's the same Hebrew word. Pharaoh's magicians tried to do the same thing with their secret arts, but this time they failed. The gnats covered everyone, people and animals alike. This is the finger of God, the magicians exclaimed to Pharaoh. But Pharaoh's heart remained hard. He wouldn't listen to them, just as the Lord had predicted. You get the idea, right? It's plague after plague after plague within the special uh, report on the condition of Pharaoh's heart. It's, it's, it's fascinating. I'm not going to read all 10 plagues to you, but let me sort of walk you through them just so you get an idea of how this goes. Number one, first plague, the Nile River turns to blood. The Nile River turns to blood. This is an amazing and a striking first plague. Pharaoh himself steps out to the Nile River in the morning. He meets Moses. Moses and Aaron, they, they take their staff, touch the river, and the entire river flows dead. Blood. It's the first plague, and, and, and that begins everything. Number two, the one we read, frogs. A plague of frogs. Frogs everywhere. Frogs up to your armpits. Now, the interesting thing here, chapter 8, verse 8, once Pharaoh is standing armpit deep in frogs, he repents. Pharaoh repents. Turns out, He's a dude you can work with when he's standing, you know, up to his eyeballs in frogs. But in chapter 8, verse 15, as soon as all the frogs are gone, the scripture says he hardens his heart. Not amazing. You put a gun to his head and he softens up. But as soon as the, as soon as the frogs are gone, as soon as the trouble passes, Pharaoh is hardening his heart. Next one, number three, gnats. Like I said, this could be mosquitoes, same Hebrew word. We're not sure. I don't even know what's worse, but the fact is there's just these swarms, these clouds of gnats, mosquitoes that are everywhere, absolutely everywhere. Chapter 8, verse 19, the scripture says, Pharaoh's heart is hard. The next one, number four, plague number four, flies. It doesn't necessarily just say, you know, house flies, like we picture, it's, it's more of a, a flying creature, but, but flies, it, it's the same sort of thing. It's a flying insect. Chapter 8, verse 28, the scripture says, in this plague of flies, Pharaoh repents again. He's got this bug thing, apparently. I mean, he repents again. But once more, after the flies are gone, chapter 8, verse 32, Pharaoh hardens his heart. Next, plague number five, death to the livestock. This disease comes upon all of the cattle, all of the livestock, and the livestock all die. Chapter nine, verse seven, the scripture says, Pharaoh's heart is hard. That brings us to number six, and now it's getting serious. Now the plague begins to afflict people, actually their flesh, and the scripture says that horrible boils Horrible sores, festering sores afflict their bodies. It, it's painful. It, it's horrible. But in chapter 9, verse 12, the scripture says the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart. Something shifts here. Something changes here with the sixth plague. Seventh plague, hail. 
It's this horrible thunderstorm that the, 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 the sky grows dark, lightning flashes and hail begins to fall. Anything that's left outside without shelter is pummeled by the hail and destroyed. Chapter nine, verse 27 and 28, Pharaoh repents. I mean, big time this time. Pharaoh repents, but once more, soon as the storm blows over, soon as the sun pops back out, chapter nine, verse 34, Pharaoh hardens his heart. Have you ever seen anything like this guy? Number eight, locusts. Locusts come, murder hornets or whatever you want to call them. The locust swarms begin to come, devastating the crops. The locust plague is horrible. Once more, chapter 10, verses 16 and 17, Pharaoh repents. When the locusts come, Pharaoh repents. But again, when the locusts are gone, chapter 10, verse 20, the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart. Which brings us to the ninth plague, three days of darkness. Now go back and read this because it's amazing. It's terrific. God causes darkness to fall in the land of Egypt for three days. The scripture says the darkness is so thick you can feel it. You ever experienced that? So it's like darkness. It's, it's so thick it's like a curtain over your face. Scripture says the Egyptians couldn't see each other. They couldn't see their hand in front of their face. But the Israelites walk in daylight. It's like God just draws a light and says light and dark. You understand? It's amazing. It's horrifying. Three days of darkness. After this, chapter 10, verse 27, the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart. And then finally, the 10th plague. I'll talk about this later in the week. The, the death of the firstborn. This is devastating. This is horrible. And this is the final plague. Chapter 12, verse 31, at the end of this plague, Pharaoh orders the Israelites to get out. He orders them to leave. And the exodus begins. 10 plagues. I mean, I can kind of laugh about frogs and gnats and flies, you know, and, but um, the God of these plagues, what is he doing? This God of love and God of peace and God of salvation, God the Father of Jesus, I mean, is the God of the plagues. What is he doing? This matters. I know it matters. Not just because the plagues happened to Pharaoh, but, but the plagues happened to me and you too. Not the same plagues, but, but what we're living through right now, it feels like a plague. And some of us would say that the trouble just comes in waves. I mean, it seems like plague after plague after plague. It seems like all hell breaks loose. And we have to wonder why. What is God doing in the plagues? Well, there's several things. And, and again, what we learn from the scripture, we apply to our lives, right? So, so let's just talk about it. The, the very first thing that I think God is doing in the plagues is, is using them to display his power. God displays his power through the plagues. Now, first off, the Israelites, God's people themselves, they need to know God's power. They've been in slavery for centuries, for generations. And though some of them perhaps have continued to cry out to God, to know God, we don't even know that for sure. We don't know to what extent they just became enculturated with the gods and goddesses of the Egyptians. We have no idea. But the Israelites, they need to know their God. They need to know his power. 
It would seem like if, if, he, if he's really God and if he's a God of power and a God who cares about his people that he would have already delivered them. What's he been doing? Has he been sitting on his hands? Do you understand? The people of Israel, they need to see a display of God's power. They need to know what God can do. And these plagues are a series of demonstrations of what God can do. And he is awesome. What he can do is awesome. As it turns out, there's nothing he can't do. They need to know that this God who says he can lead them out, he can lead them out. This is a demonstration of his power. On top of that, the Egyptians, they need to know his power. Remember back when Pharaoh said, who is the Lord and why should I listen to him? Well, he's about to find out. This is why you listen to this God. He is not a God to be ignored. He is not a God to be despised. He is not a God to turn away from. With the plagues, God demonstrates his power, his incredible authority over everything, his authority to simply command creation, to turn the Nile River from water to blood just by a word to call the frogs, the gnats, the flies, the locusts. A God who can simply command the hail to fall. The God who can command light and darkness and draw the line in between. This God is a God of power. The plagues display his power. In chapter nine, verse 15, God is talking to Pharaoh. And he says, you know, you're lucky. You're lucky. I could send one plague and erase you. With one plague, I mean, with, I mean, the only reason you're still standing here is because I'm letting you stand there. And the reason I'm holding back, the reason I haven't completely flattened you, because I want you standing there so that you can witness my power. I want you to know my power. In these troubled times and plagues and all of those impossible moments of your life, understand, God is displaying his power. Here's the point. When you face the impossible, you learn that nothing is impossible with God, and you need to know. You need to know. You need to be in a situation that you can't control so that you know that there is a power higher than yours. You need to be in a situation that is beyond our government in every way so that you learn who is actually on the throne. You need to be in a situation where a miracle is necessary so that you know that God works miracles. There is nothing impossible for this God. The only thing he can't do is fail you. And when you face the impossible, you learn that nothing is impossible with God. The plagues demonstrate his awesome power. And he is powerful. I'm telling you, when you see the power of this God, you either begin to fear him or trust him, both. The plagues display his power. Beyond that, the plagues, especially in the book of Exodus, I'm not sure the word to use. I'm not satisfied with any words I would use. Um, the, the plagues uh, display God's ultimate kingship, the way he is God above all gods, the Lord of all lords. You, you understand, there are no other gods he is God, and, and, and God alone, God all by himself, Willie Ray says. I mean, he's God. And the Egyptians need to know that. The Israelites need to know that. You need to know that. So the plagues are God's opportunity to display the fact that he is God and God alone. Remember, the Egyptians were very religious. 
If you've ever seen their paintings, those hieroglyphics, if you've ever seen the, the idols, the statues of their gods and goddesses, and they had a bunch of them. They had a whole pantheon, a whole parade of goddesses and gods over everything. They worshiped the Nile River. They sing hymns to the Nile River. They thought that the Nile River itself was the source of their lives because it brought water in the desert. They had all sorts of worship, all sorts of gods and goddesses and idols. And I'm telling you, the plagues are a systematic exposure that those gods are false. He exposes them one at a time and he melts them. You know, like that green witch at the end of Wizard of Oz. I mean, he just melts them one at a time. He exposes them and disposes of them. I'll give you an example. As I said, they worship the Nile River. They sing hymns to the Nile River. What's the first plague? The Nile River, the source of their lives, it turns to death. It flows blood. Do you see that? Do you see what happens when people who worship the Nile River suddenly recognize that the Nile River itself is foul, is dead? How can you possibly resume worship of a God that you've seen before your eyes turn powerless? You know, in ancient Egypt, they believed that frogs were sacred. Frogs were lucky. In ancient Egypt, it was a sin to kill frogs. I don't make this stuff up, y'all. It was a sin to kill frogs. They thought frogs were lucky. So God just gave them a lot of frogs, lucky frogs. They had lucky frogs in every dresser drawer. They had frogs every time they opened the oven. They had frogs in their refrigerator. They had frogs in the microwave. They had frogs in every pants pocket. They had frogs in your underwear. I mean, frogs were everywhere. You had fro frogs up to your eyeballs. And then in the end, when all the frogs died, they just piled them up and they sat around and stank. I guarantee you, after that, no Egyptian ever thought frogs were lucky again. You see what God's doing? I mean, one at a time. Do you realize that the Egyptian goddess of love was a cow. As far as I'm concerned, they can have her. I mean, you're seeing, their, their goddess of love was a cow. And then there it is right there in the fifth plague, all of the cows, all of the livestock are diseased and die right out there in the pasture. You understand that? All of a sudden, your, your goddess, the cow, her power turns out to be fake news. One at a time, God exposes their gods. Isis, the famous Egyptian goddess of healing. Turns out Isis can't help you when you're covered with boils. Cry out to her all you want, but she's not there. You understand? She's not real. She has no power. She's empty. She's false. For the Egyptians, the, the, the high god, the god above other gods was Ray, the sun god. And in the ninth plague... God just flips the switch and turns him off. What must it have been to, to, to worship the sun, to, to honor Ray, the sun god, and then realize that this god of Moses can command the sun to go dark? You see what happens? One at a time in these plagues, I mean, everything that they trusted and everything they depended upon, I mean, they thought these things had power. They thought that these things were the very source of their lives, and one at a time, those gods are toppled. Funny thing is, I've heard people talk about this present moment in our lives as a similar sort of process. 
How in this pandemic, this, this lockdown, if you will, in America, it's as if systematically, all of the things that we've always trusted, the things that we put in the center of everything, the, the false gods that we have trusted and worshiped, they've been exposed and, and, and disposed. I mean, that job that you thought was everything is gone. Millions of Americans out of jobs. The, the money that you thought was so important. I mean, you thought if there's anything at all that you wanted, you would have money and you would buy it. But your money's not worth anything if all the stores are closed. That illusion that you were in control, that illusion that you could get in your car and go where you want, do what you want, you understand? That illusion evaporated instantly on one day in March. You're not in control. Our government, you understand, no matter what kind of faith you put in, whatever party you choose, you understand, they can't help you. They don't have the wisdom. This is beyond them. It's beyond all of us. The idea that you were healthy, the idea that you were young, the idea that somehow you were powerful, that you were immune to trouble, you understand, all of that gone. Even our celebrities Man, we are a celebrity-worshipping culture, but now our celebrities got the same bad hair we got. They're on YouTube just like us. Turns out they can't even operate their own iPhones. When you take them out of the studio, they can't even sing no more. They're caterwauling in their iPhones. They sound like me and you. I heard one person say that celebrity culture in the United States will never be the same. We've seen them all home and locked down in their pajama bottoms, just like us. They're just like us. So do you understand, this is what God does with plagues. This is what God does in times of trouble. When everything you depend upon fails, you learn to depend upon the God that never fails. All the other gods, all the other sources of your life, you thought you could trust in yourself, your ability to go to work, make money. It's all gone now, and you're going to have to learn that the source of everything, the source of your life and everything else good, that source is one, and it is the Lord God. He is the only thing that will never fail you. He is the only power, the only power that can deliver us, the only source of healing, the only source of wisdom. He alone is God, and He alone can we depend upon. All the other gods, false as they are, exposed for what they are. That's what God does in times like this. Don't you feel that? Don't you see that? One more thing, and this one quite important. With the plagues, you can see that God is doing something very personal with Pharaoh. What's he doing? What is God doing with, with, with Pharaoh? Ten plagues, each one directed to, to Pharaoh. Each one, Pharaoh has a decision to make. Each, each time, Pharaoh's response is noted. What, what's God doing with Pharaoh? Well, let me say it this way, and, and, and then we'll talk about how it applies. I'll say it this way. When you're a slow learner, okay, Pharaoh is a slow learner. We just admit that. Pharaoh is a slow learner. We know up front exactly what message Pharaoh's supposed to be receiving. The problem is he doesn't receive it. We know exactly what he's supposed to be hearing because Moses steps out over and over and over and says, Pharaoh, thus says the Lord. But Pharaoh doesn't listen to the Lord. 
We know exactly what Pharaoh's supposed to be hearing. At some point, Pharaoh must know what he's supposed to be hearing, but he doesn't hear it. He is a very, very slow learner. There's a lesson he's supposed to be receiving, but he doesn't receive it. This is the slowest learner in history. And when you are a slow learner, you discover that God is a very patient teacher. Among all the things I just said, I'm begging you not to miss the point that with the plagues, God gives Pharaoh 10 chances, 10 chances to do the right thing, 10 opportunities. One after another, after another. God continues to give Pharaoh one more opportunity, one more chance to do what's right. 10 chances. But Pharaoh does not do what God wants him to do. Pharaoh will not do what is right. And according to the scripture, the issue has something to do with his heart. Something about his heart makes him such a slow learner. And according to the scripture, it's because Pharaoh's heart is hard. Actually, there are three processes, three factors at play here in Pharaoh's spiritual life, and they're important to note all three. First off, the scripture says that Pharaoh's heart is hard. His heart is hard. It's a way of saying that this guy's hard-headed. He's stubborn. He does not respond. He does not learn. He does not listen. Pharaoh's heart is hard. That's how he is. His heart is hard. But then it says, secondly, Pharaoh hardens his heart. So there is a a time in this process when it's not just that his heart is hard, Pharaoh hardens his own heart. It's like Pharaoh is on this road going the wrong direction and he just pushes on the gas. Pharaoh gets more stubborn. He makes himself more stubborn. It's a choice. You ever known anybody like this? I mean, he's already stubborn. His heart's already hard, but he just decides to make it harder. I mean, you think this guy's made up, but I mean, he can make it up in concrete. Harden his own heart. But then the third thing, and this is the, this is the one that people really struggle with. I mean, people argue over this one. The scripture says that the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart. The Lord hardens his heart. Now, some people take that to mean that the Lord sort of has the switch and he flips the switch and turns Pharaoh's heart off. So after that point, Pharaoh's no longer making his own decision. God makes the decision for him and then punishes him for it. You understand how that would work? It's like God makes it impossible for Pharaoh to say yes, but then punishes him for saying no. And I just want you to see that's not what's happening in the scripture. Notice how these things interplay. There's a certain flow to it. After the second plague, the scripture says he hardens his heart. After the fourth plague, he hardens his heart. After the gnats, it says his heart is hard. After the fifth plague, diseased livestock, his heart is hard. After the sixth plague, the Lord hardens his heart. Something turns there. And then after the seventh plague, he hardens his own heart. The Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart. The Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart. You see, it's after a certain point when the Lord begins to harden his heart. But even then, there are levels and layers to that. There's a process in that hardening, and there's a point at which God takes a direct part in that. I'm not, I'm not taking that away. But, but what does it mean? As I said, 
I don't believe it means that God flips the switch and therefore Pharaoh is no longer able to make his own decision. I don't think God removes his free will. I think what it means, among other things, is that a soft heart is a gift, a gift of the grace of God. That, that, that a heart that responds to the Lord, that that in itself is a gift from God. That, that in some way, God's reaching for me is the only thing that makes it possible for me to reach for him. One way or the other, the point is that Pharaoh's heart is hard. And it gets harder. What you have to understand is that the harder your heart is, the harder your heart gets. The Lord continues to give Pharaoh another chance, another chance, another chance. I'm telling you, there's a point at which I don't think this guy deserves any more chances, but God is a very patient teacher. Pharaoh says no a thousand times. God continues to give him one more opportunity. Moses gives him one more chance. Thus says the Lord, he says. And Pharaoh continues to harden his heart and harden his heart and harden his heart. And then the Lord begins to harden his heart. Do you see what's happening? I mean, the harder your heart is, the harder your heart gets. A thousand times, he says, no. There's this this incredible way in which Pharaoh just pushes on the gas and continues down this road, and God gives him opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. Do you see how this works? Do you see what's happening here? Because what happens is after the three days of darkness, after the ninth plague, Moses approaches Pharaoh, and Pharaoh looks at Moses and says, I never want to see your face again. I never want to see your face again. And Moses looks back at Pharaoh and says, you will never see my face again. And that was it. You understand? Pharaoh said no a thousand times. And then Pharaoh said no one more time. And it was the last time. You say no long enough, it becomes impossible to say yes. See, this horrifies me. First off, you have to understand, I believe this. I believe all of this. And I know that I'm talking to people who've been saying no to the Lord for their whole lives. You've been saying no to the Lord your whole life. You've said no to him every single time. I mean, no to his offer of salvation. You've said no. You know the gospel. You know what Jesus has done for you. You know how he died for you. You know it all. You you could preach it because you've heard it over and over and over and over and over. You've said no. You've said no. And every time you've said no, your heart has gotten a little bit harder and a little bit harder. Your heart is hard. 
And the harder your heart is, the harder your heart gets. And I'm afraid you're not understanding something. That you tell God no time after time after time. I mean, he continues to give you another opportunity and another opportunity. He gives you chance after chance after chance. I don't think you understand. One of these days you're going to say no, and it's going to be the last time. It is the terrible gift of free will that God gives you choice, and you choose, and you refuse, and you say no, and he continues to knock on the door of your heart, and you continue to say no, and you say no, and you know, and don't you understand that in one of these days, your answer gets fixed for all of eternity. One of these days, that is your final answer. You say no, and it's the last time. Pharaoh says, I don't ever want to see your face again. And Moses says, you will never. You will never see my face again. And it's over. Pharaoh's going to live a little bit longer, but. No more chances. So, some of you are asking, is, is this coronavirus, is, is it like a plague from God? I don't know. Nobody knows. Nobody can tell you that. Nobody can say. Will God use it? Will God use it to display his power? Will God use it to draw people to him? Will God use it to to display his glory? Yes, absolutely. God will use it. God will use it. Let's just get folded into God's master plan to save the world. I'm telling you, God will use it. He will receive glory from it. He will display his strength in it. You haven't seen anything yet. What God will do with this. I know for some of you, though, it seems really personal. I mean, locked down in your house, some of you all by yourself, it it just starts to feel personal. And you start wondering, is is God trying to tell me something? You you feel the anxiety rising. You you feel that jittery. It's just like you're going to jump out of your skin with loneliness and fear, frustration. God, help all of you who are in recovery and trying to stay sober through all of this. God, help you. I mean, it's just your hard times. And, And it feels personal. And, and some of you are asking, is, is God trying to tell me something? Is there, is there a message for me? Is there a lesson for me? And, and I will answer that. Yes. Yes. God's always trying to tell you something. He's always trying to teach you something. So learn. Listen to him. Whatever it is he's saying to you, you listen to him. If it's a lesson you're supposed to be learning, let's learn it the easy way. You don't have to learn everything the hard way. If he wants you to change the road you're walking, change the road you're walking. See, see, see the problem is the, the, the way plagues work. You know, the old preachers have always said that the same sun 
that will harden the clay, will melt the wax. Some of you in this, your heart's just getting harder. the, The same sickness, the same lockdown, the same quarantine, we're all going through it the same way, but it doesn't affect us in in identical ways, and some of us just melt in the presence of God. We draw closer to Him. We're learning to trust Him, but others, your heart gets hard. I just want to give you one more verse. This is from the book of Hebrews chapter 3, verse 15, and it simply says this, today when you hear His voice, today when you hear His voice, don't harden your heart. You've heard the plan of salvation a thousand times and a thousand times you've said no. Don't harden your heart. You don't know that you get another chance. And God knows you don't deserve another chance. You've said no all of these times. I'm just so afraid that you're going to say no. And it's going to be your last time. That, that terrifies me for you. Does it not terrify you? Today when you hear his voice, don't, don't harden your heart. Some of you, you, you are Christians, you are believers, but at the same time your heart is hard. God continues to work on you, to call you deeper into his love, to call you to forgive your enemies, to to call you to to, to seek him in a greater purpose, to sacrifice more of yourself, to to serve him in bigger ways, to die more and more to yourself and live more and more for Christ, but you continue to harden your heart. You take some sort of comfort in the fact that you go to church, that you carry a Bible, that, that your name's on a church roll, but your heart is so hard. Today, when you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Don't harden your heart. Because I really believe that a a soft heart for the Lord, it's a gift of his grace. Your ability to reach for him, I think it has everything to do with his willingness to reach out for you. Don't refuse him. Today when you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Because tomorrow may come and you may never hear his voice again. Don't harden your heart. Pray with me. Oh Lord, if it is true that a heart that is soft toward you is a gift of your grace, then Lord Jesus, give us the gift of a soft heart. Lord, I pray that you would shatter the hearts of stone in the chest of men and women that are listening to this sermon, Lord, in the sound of my voice, will you just take away their hearts of stone and give them soft hearts of flesh, hearts that respond to you, hearts that break for you, hearts that will listen, 
Oh God, I pray for those stubborn, stubborn hearts out there who've said no to you a thousand times. Lord, I pray that today is the day when they say yes. Before the day comes, Lord, when they no longer have the opportunity to say anything at all. God, I pray that you would be glorified, that your power will be displayed in the midst of this difficult time, this plague that our world is going through. Lord, I pray that you will soften every hard heart, that your light would shine in every dark heart. Lord, I pray that you would be glorified, lifted up, that all of our hearts, Lord, will be turned toward you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus who died to save us. Amen.